Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Luke, uh, and I've been serving as a trainee here at Moreland's at the moment. Um, as has already been mentioned, we're going to be reading from Philippians 1, verses 12 to 30 today. Uh, and you can find that passage on page 1178 in the Red Church Bibles. Um, so I'll just give you a, a moment or so to find it. Okay, so Philippians 1, verses 12 to 30. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains... Most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But... It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, 
but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What we are living for affects our happiness. If the thing we're living for in life goes well, then we'll have a happy life. I think that's a concept that most of us can sort of understand. However, we also know from experience that uh, it doesn't really work. It's foolish, isn't it? to have that one thing in your life that you're living for. And when we talk about someone and we say, oh, that person is, is living for that job or that particular relationship or that hobby or the, that experience or pleasure, we know that's you know, an oversimplification, don't we? Because we already know that not, no one thing can fully satisfy us in our life. Right? All those things will just let us down if we try and live for them as just the one thing, and we'll probably end up miserable. So actually, what most of us do is something that we think is quite clever, which is we hedge our bets. We, we balance out our affections and priorities across multiple things that could bring us satisfaction, thereby spreading out that joy uh, to several areas of life. So I think the bog-standard human experience becomes a sort of balancing act, trying to maximize happiness as we anxiously move around these centers of satisfaction that we've invested in. Paul, however, in this letter to the Philippians, says, to live is Christ. He has found a single thing to invest his whole life into. And far from it bringing him misery, far from it bring, being some kind of religious duty, we're going to see that going all in for Jesus totally satisfies him and brings him joy in every situation, even in real suffering. So I hope you're intrigued to uh, see this mindset of Paul explained in these verses. Um, but I have to give you a warning before we start, and that is this, that Philippians was not written for our philosophical interest. And it's not just a sort of biography of Paul's life. Paul, in this book, is adamant that he must pass on this mindset to the next generation of believers. That means these Philippian Christians that he's writing to, and also anyone else who would care to read this letter. And that includes you and me, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. It sounds like Paul thinks he's kind of coming to the end of his life, and he wants to pass on this baton of living all in for Christ and his gospel. And he has his sights set on everyone. No one's excluded. He wants us all to live out this radical mindset. 
So don't say I didn't warn you. Uh, The passage is in three sections. The first two are Paul describing two aspects of this mindset in his life, and the third is a particular way he wants it to apply to the Philippians. Uh, The headings are on those uh, handouts, and uh, you might find it useful to follow a talk in those and make notes. Um, I'll be referring to those, um, the verses that Luke just read for us. And so if you've not uh, kept Philippians 1 open, then do um, get it back open if you've lost it. That was page um, 1178 of the Red Church Bibles. So have a look again at uh, verse 12 of me. I'm just our first heading, Rejoice in Gospel Progress, verses 12 to 8. Verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Even in suffering, Paul's focus is the progress of the gospel. And he wants the Philippians to copy him. Now I want you to know, brothers, Paul says. Last week we saw there's a lot of love between Paul and these, uh, this church in Philippi, these brothers and sisters he's writing to. And in chapter 2, uh, we learn that they've sent a messenger to Paul to check that he's okay. And so Paul cares about them so much that he's, he's worried about the fact they're worried about him. And he is in a bit of a tough spot at the moment. And some people think that's basically the, the reason he wrote this letter to reply to their concern and say, you know, don't worry, I'm okay. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, don't worry, I'm okay. He says, don't worry, the gospel is progressing. That's what I'm focused on, and that's what I want you to know, because that's what I want you to focus on as well. Just before we get into this, this section. He, he says uh, that what has happened to me has really um, served to advance the gospel. So what has happened to Paul? Let's take a bit, bit of a recap, um, just rewind, and we'll look at um, Acts uh, 28. The, the, the end of the book of Acts is a good place to go. Um, so it's on the screen uh, so you can see it. So Acts 28, starting verse 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to him, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason... I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And then also in uh, verses 30 to 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul has gotten into real trouble in Jerusalem with a group of Jews who wanted to see him executed because of what he's been preaching. Uh, So he's forced into a position where, although he's clearly innocent, he has to kind of appeal to the Supreme Court. But Acts tells us uh, that when he gets to Rome, he just stays there under house arrest, chained to a soldier all day, waiting for his trial or the result of his trial, which if the verdict came back guilty, sounds like 
he would be executed. And so Paul is writing this letter of Philippians in that context while he's imprisoned in Rome. So the, the Christians in Philippi are kind of right to be worried, aren't they? It's not um, a great situation that Paul is in right now. You know, he's not rejoicing because it's, it's all fine. He's not rejoicing and saying, you know what, uh, it's totally fine because they let me stay in this really nice house and I get lots of visitors. The situation for Paul is pretty bad. Even from kind of conscientious Christians who are concerned about the gospel, it's pretty bad. Think about how the Philippians would be seeing this when they think about Paul in prison. God had given Paul the job of taking the gospel to the nations. He'd been traveling around the whole Roman Empire preaching the gospel. People believed the first times. Uh, churches were started. He would go back and encourage them, go to new places. He had plans to go to the ends of the known world. And his method was typically to go to the local Jewish synagogue or go to the kind of Greek forum and then follow that up with kind of encouraging people house to house, moving around. And now he's chained, stuck in one place, restricted. He can't go to those new places. And he's just waiting for a verdict that could come that could mean his death. And this is Paul, the apostle. He's the one looking after all his young churches. If Paul goes, what then? Just the fact that he's in prison could be, for the Christians, a source for embarrassment, a source of shame, a real blow to all the Christians all over. It's an opportunity, as we see in this passage, for his enemies to tell those those Christians they were wrong about Paul, um, and an opportunity for church leaders who didn't like Paul to attempt a power struggle in his absence. But in all that, Paul rejoices despite his situation, because the gospel of Christ is advancing. And because that is what he has made his life about, life for him is going well. Paul can see that the gospel has continued to make progress in his situation. And there's three kind of results of that that cause him to rejoice. Um, So firstly, the outsiders. Look at verse 13. As a result, it became clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Being under guard by the emperor's own bodyguards, which is what these guys are here, these hardened military men, that must have been pretty daunting for Paul. But it did mean that they had to spend all their time with an apostle who had been tasked with telling non-Jews the gospel. If this was someone's plan to try and silence the message, big mistake, big mistake. The second result that he's rejoicing in is the brothers in verse 14. His imprisonment has actually made most of the local Christians to speak the gospel more boldly. And we might want to talk about that um, afterwards, why that might be the case, and if that would be the case in our situation. Is that what would happen to us if, if, say, Danny was put in prison? But one of the explanations in verse 16 that when we know someone is being wrongfully treated for the defense of the gospel, we want to stand with them out of love for them. And the third result, though, is the one he spends most time on, is, which, is, um, which is crazy, actually, because in contrast with those speaking out of love for Paul, he's rejoicing in those sharing the gospel for terrible motives. Look at verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. And verse 17, the former preached Christ 
out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Now, I found it hard to picture exactly who this group are that he's talking about. Um, Envy and rivalry. So maybe they're envious of Paul's kind of influence on the churches. Selfish ambition, not sincerely. So they're, they're preaching Christ for selfish motives, not actually doing it out of love for Christ and his gospel. Instead, they think that by telling people the gospel, maybe in a sort of rival power struggle in the church, they can make Paul suffer even more while he's kind of out of the picture. And we might think, oh, you know, these people aren't Christians, but Paul doesn't seem to go that far. I don't think these are the real villains that we find later on in the book, the mutilators of the flesh in in chapter 3. Here he seems to put their preaching of Christ alongside those who are doing it out of good motives. And so you see, they are genuinely preaching Christ. So he calls out their false motives, and I think there is a challenge in there for us. But the main point is where his focus is. He rejoices in his chains. He rejoices even while these people are trying to give him extra trouble while he's in chains. Why? Because the gospel is going out. Look at verse 18. But what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul is an odd fellow, isn't he? (laughs) And we might think, well, he's a special case, you know. He's Paul. He's an apostle. He was always doing crazy things. But his attitude here is one that he wants us to follow. He wants the Philippians to be able to say with him in verse 18, the important thing is that Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. He wants them to be able to say that even when they're suffering. So we might think as we we look through this passage, you know, we are far from Paul's thinking here. Um, But this is what the book of Philippians is going to do for us, to help us to get that mindset. So the answer, whether you're feeling really convinced right now or not, is keep listening to the book of Philippians. Keep listening to this passage and keep coming back in future weeks. Um, But it really all starts here, the heart of um, Paul's mindset, with understanding uh, how he sees life. That leads us to our, our second section in our passage. So secondly, live for gospel priorities from verses 19 to 26. Paul can so rejoice in his suffering because he knows what life is about and is secure in every eventuality, whether in life or in death. You see, he mentions a deliverance there at the end of verse 19. A deliverance, a rescue that he's been waiting for. But he's not um, waiting to be saved from prison. Instead, the thing that he's expecting by the means of Philippians' prayers for him and by the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is to stand before God one day, unashamed, because he didn't back down from his job of sharing the gospel. Look at verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Again, his um, priorities... Are just crazy, aren't he? He's not worried about 
primarily being vindicated in this life, but that he'll continue to live for Christ in prison and instead be vindicated on the last day, to not be ashamed. His only concern at the end of verse 20 is that Christ is honored, whatever the outcome of his trial, whether he's heading for life or for death. Where exactly does this mindset come from? Well, it's the core of it there is verse 21, isn't it? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For Paul, life is all about Jesus Christ. He is like a man obsessed. He's like a man head over heels in love. They say you do crazy things when you're in love. Um, when I was trying to get my wife, Laura, to notice me at university, I did do some very silly things, some embarrassing things. Laura was like, oh, you should talk about this. I'm not going to talk about any. Um, and, um, and, and none of them really worked anyway. <laughs> it took ages. Um, but this isn't mere infatuation that Paul's talking about. It's not, it's not a human romance. It's so much deeper than that. This is real, deep love. It's based on Paul's confidence in the gospel of Christ that he keeps talking about, this message of Jesus. And the content of his gospel is only kind of hinted out throughout this passage. So let me just try at this point to try and uh, spell it out for us. Um, Let me use the words that we're going to sing in our final song. That song, it says, Christ has shed his own blood for my soul. It talks about my sin. That is all the wrong I've ever done and ever will do. It says, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin... Not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. That is, when Jesus took it from us and died on the cross himself. And I bear it no more. And that includes none of the shame, none of the judgment we deserve that comes from it. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. You see, Paul is someone who has got that worked out. And he's sure of it. And because Jesus saved us from such a, such a helpless situation, and it was the only way, he has bought us at a price. He owns us now. We belong to him. He is our master and Lord. But not in some kind of slavery or drudgery. We wouldn't have it any other way. And Jesus doesn't do it begrudgingly either. As we were seeing in, in 2 Samuel a few weeks ago, he is our kind gracious king. So there is no happier or safer place for Paul's life than with Christ, his Lord, whom he loves. And the rest of the verses in this middle section are interesting because because of his love for Jesus, Paul is getting himself wrapped up in this pickle about which is better, life or death. Um, Look at the middle of verse 22. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary that I remain. 
Now, this, this bit's a bit confusing. It sounds like he contradicts himself a few times, but I don't think he's trying to decide which he will do. More that he's trying to come to a conclusion as to which is overall better, all things considered. On the one hand, he may depart, that is, to die, and he'll be with Christ, the thing that he is longing for so much, which is obviously better by far. That is the great hope of all of us when the time comes to close these temporary eyes and open new permanent eyes that will see Jesus face to face. But even that said, he is in this pickle because he loves Christ so much. He knows that dying safe in Jesus would clearly be better for him, but he won't make the decision for his own sake. The other option is to remain alive. In verse 22, he says that will mean fruitful labor for him. And it seems that that fruitful labor would mean living, going back to see the Philippians, seeing fruit from them in terms of them growing in their faith. But you see, even then, he's working out the pros and the cons based on the joy he gets in his life because of his love for Jesus. And so even though dying is clearly better, before going to be with Christ, he thinks that his Lord might have some more fruitful work for him to do. And he's not excited about that because, you know, he loves his job. Or he's really good at it. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to see some fruitful labor. That fruitfulness is like the, the fruit we saw last week in verse 11. If you look back there, it, it comes from Jesus Christ. It's about what Jesus is going to do through Paul. And that is what he is excited about. Paul is ready to go whenever Jesus has decided it is time for him to go. But he is so living for gospel priorities that if Jesus wants to get more glory for himself um, by Paul living a bit more, then Paul is all up for that. Look down at verse 25 and verse 26 with me. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. You see, even in this struggle to decide which one is best for him, two amazingly good options because of his love and joy in Christ, He's prioritizing the gospel of Christ going out in his life. If it's what Jesus wants, then because of his love for Christ, he is all in. It was our um, wedding anniversary a few weeks ago, and I always buy Laura a, a, a wedding anniversary present. I'm, I'm not a monster. Um, but I have to confess that it is normally just a, uh, just a very practical present. Uh, something that I think we need around the house, really. It's not really. <laughs> she's kind of like something, you know, she would appreciate. But it's really something that I think we need. Um, but I've got some good news. This year, it was a bit different. Uh, she had mentioned for a while that she wanted an, an ornamental clock. And again, I was thinking, nah. <laughs> 
We don't need that. That's what mobile phones are for, if you want to know the time. But as the anniversary approached, I could feel myself deciding to want to get the clock. And I don't want to get too soppy about this, but I love my wife. And what she wanted had become what I wanted. Now, that is a very trivial example of what is going on here with this much deeper love with our Savior and Creator, our God, between Paul and Jesus. But Paul has something uh, particular in mind for the Philippians to um, apply this thinking. There's something he particularly is concerned that they do in order they take up this baton from Paul. In order to live for, uh, as, uh, for Christ as a church family in Philippi. Uh, and that is our final section. He wants them to strive with gospel partners from 27 to 30. Look with me at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, Paul's concern comes back to passing on this baton to the Philippians. So that even if Paul dies in prison, they'll be sufficiently following his example in living for Christ. And so it's in light of the gospel of Christ that he wants them to think about how to live rightly in their particular situation. Which means if Christ is the Lord, if he has indeed saved us completely for eternity, that we should see certain characteristics working out in our church family. So this is where the rubber starts to hit the road. These are the first commands from Paul in the letter. He wants the Philippians to actually do something. And I think these two verses, verse 27 and 28, are key for the whole book. So we're going to see these worked out in future weeks. So don't worry if we don't get into too much detail in them now. Um, And we'll just be discussing them for, for months to come, hopefully. What is he looking for? Well, there are kind of three things, but I think really the middle one is the most important. They're all kind of the same thing. Um, look at the middle of verse 27. Um, he's concerned that you, that you stand firm, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. It seems that, like Paul's imprisonment, he wants the Philippians to be able to stand up under persecution that is certainly going to come their way. And he wants, to do, he wants them to do this together as a church, um, completely united, and united around the gospel for the sake of the continued belief in the gospel. Now, Paul wrote this letter in Greek, I mention that because there's an interesting Greek word that I'd like to draw your attention to, uh, which is in English, in our English translation, is translated as contending as one man. So that, that middle kind of thing he wants them to do. And it's an interesting Greek verb. The Greek verb is sort of uh, sin athleo. It has a sin part with S-Y-N and an athleo part. You can see if you can kind of guess what it means. Sin, like synergy. So you get the idea of working together, energies put together. But um, the athleo part is where we get the word athlete from. And as well in the original Greek, it, it really meant more kind of wrestling athletes. Okay, so sin athleo, working, wrestling together. Um, some translations have it striving together or striving side by side to try and capture it. Um, 
Has anyone been following the beginning of Tokyo 2020 Olympics? Anyone? It's okay, a few people, a few people. It's okay, this, the quiz will be easy, even if you haven't. Um, so we need to try and find a kind of working together, fighting, wrestling sport. So can anyone think, first of all, of any uh, sports that might be in the Tokyo 2020 Olympics that are martial arts or combat sports? Yeah. Taekwondo. Well done. Yeah. Judo. Judo. Yeah. You can say wrestling. That's a kind of a free one. Wrestling. wrestling. Yeah, it was a risk because it, it might not have been a trick. It might not have been in there. Any others? Boxing. Boxing. Yeah, good. <laughs> Boxing is also fencing. That's, I mean, it's like, ooh, touche, you touched me, you know. Um, it's not really a combat sport, is it? Yeah, good. Um, but I was, really, I was really looking for a team. You'd find none of those are a team sports. For the, for the picture, the illustration he has here, this Greek word we can't translate, we need a team combat sport. This is the illustration of the church. And I found one, and they're doing it this year in Tokyo 2020. And they're calling it rugby. <laughs> Did you see where I was going, John? You, you could see. Um, now, in rugby, John, they've got this thing called a scrum. Is that right? And um, it's when they're trying to fight for possession of the ball. They get their heads down, shoulders in. You know, they grab each other's thighs. <laughs> and that is the kind of picture that Paul wants us to think about when, he, when we think about the church striving together for the gospel in this world. Now, we might think, why is it so hard? Why has he got this, this you know, horribly tough illustration? What are, we, what are we fighting against? Who's the other team pushing against us? Well, we have an enemy in this world, don't we? Satan, who from the beginning of time has been whispering lies into people's ears, telling them that it's better to live a life without God. That actually, although we should be living our whole lives for God, he says, no, 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 it's better just to live for yourself. You be your own God. And as I've been preparing this passage for the last few weeks, one verse that keeps coming up to me is when... Um, Jesus talking to Peter, and he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And people have said this before, but gates are not offensive weapons. Often we feel like, um, you know, maybe when we think of rugby, we just think, oh, he means a holy huddle. We've got to sort of huddle defensively because we're going to be attacked from all sides. But no, gates are, are defensive structures. The idea is that they will not prevail against the church breaking through as we strive side by side, saving souls from hell, saving people from life, miserable lives where they think that life is all about just living for themselves and they don't know their creator, their Lord, who brings ultimate satisfaction. They're heading for destruction and they don't know the forgiveness in the cross. They don't know that all their shame can be taken away. That is what we're fighting for. So I quite like the rugby analogy. Paul wants the whole church to strive together, to be getting stuck into the gospel work together in the midst of hostility from the world. You see, it's like what Joe was saying last week. It's, it's not that this unity comes from being similar kinds of people, 
we're all quite different. And it's, it's not just because we're all good mates. No, we might not naturally get along together. But if all of us are all in for Jesus, then we will love his church because we love him. What will this look like? It'll, it'll mean encouraging and challenging each other to make sure that each of us doesn't let go of our confidence in Christ. It will mean helping each other to speak the gospel in a world that is against us. It will mean facing the persecution together. And um, we don't have time to go into that in lots of detail. That would be a great thing to maybe chat about afterwards with people. Um, How can we be striving side by side? And verses 29 and 30 are great reminders that um, persecution is to be expected. God has planned for them to suffer for Christ's sake. And in verse 30, he reminds us that um, they are simply sharing in the same suffering that Paul is going through. This is completely normal for the church. Well, what are we to take from this passage? Uh, If you're not a Christian here this morning, um, I'm so glad that you've been here or tuning in. I'm so glad that you've been able to see this insight into Paul's mindset that he wants all people to have. And you know, he wants you to have this mindset as well. Even though you might think you're a million miles away from that at the moment. Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about Jesus Christ like Paul thinks about him? That he's someone worth giving up everything for, completely living your whole life round. Someone worth suffering for, worth shouting about. Someone worth making all your hopes and dreams about every moment of your life about him. This, is, this Jesus is the Lord. He is your God and has saved you completely so we can live for him. And Paul and any Christian friends you have, all of us want you to think about that this morning. And um, maybe you should ask someone afterwards, why are you living for Christ? And for those of us here who are Christians, we should have lots to say if someone comes and asks you, why are you living for Christ? I think often we just forget the gospel, don't we? Maybe we've started just doing things for Jesus out of a sense of reluctant religious duty instead of being sure of how much he's done for us. Sometimes we're kind of continuing to sort of live the Christian life, but all for the wrong motives. And many of us will know that um, that is a, a dreary way to live. But Paul reminds us that going all in for Christ and his gospel is the joyful life. Because in whatever situation, if Christ is winning, then we'll be winning with him. If Christ is glorified, then we'll be overjoyed. It's not a, it's not a balanced life. It's not a, just a part of who we are. It's all-consuming. But it is the one thing that is not foolish to make your life about. It will be hard, but it's interesting how he applies this thinking with the challenge to live all in 
side by side with our church family. If you're thinking this morning, I, I just, this is too high for me to attain to. Actually, we're not meant to do it by ourselves. We're meant to be doing it in partnership with our church family. We're meant to be there for each other. I'm worried that one of the biggest barriers for us in following Paul's example is our individualism in our 21st century Western society. You know, rugby isn't a game for everyone. You know, getting as physically close as they do in a scrum is maybe something that you'd find embarrassing. But in church, we need to be living our lives side by side for the sake of the gospel. Let's not separate our love for Christ and our love for the progress of the gospel. And let's not separate our love for Christ and a love for his people. And let's not separate love for people and a desire to see the gospel progress in their lives. Paul wants us to take up this mantle and be all in for Jesus. So let's pray that we do that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you for his kindness and grace as he died for us on the cross. Thank you that he sought to forgive us completely, present us perfect to you, to live a life of perfect joy with him forever. We thank you that he is completely worth living for. He was who we were made to live for. And so we pray that as a whole church, we would take that step of living all in for him. We pray we will be sure that a life lived for him is one where we can rejoice, even in suffering. And we pray, please, that we would be good at loving each other because of our love for Christ. We pray we would get stuck in to the work of the gospel in our church, even though we know persecution will come our way. And we pray that all of this would be for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.